Shrink Wrap Radio number 880, Brian Kloss on chance, chaos, and why everything we do matters. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is noted author and international political consultant, Dr. Brian Kloss. We'll be discussing his 2024 book, Fluke. Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Brian Kloss, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's a real pleasure for me because uh, we're going to be discussing your new book, Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. And uh, I have to say, it's such a delightful book that I've been recommending it to my family and, and my friends. And, and when I try to tell them what it's about, I, I, uh, I kind of flounder around. It's hard. It's a wonderful science book. That's what I would say. It's a book with so many facts about science and, and our universe and life that uh, I just find it exceedingly rich and wonderful. Now, I know that you grew up in Minnesota, or born there or something, and somehow you've uh, moved to other parts of the world. I'm not even sure where you are right now. Well, I'm actually in a hotel in New York City, but um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, live in, uh, I live in England. So I, um, I went over to England for grad school and I stuck around. So I've been in the UK for almost 13 years, um, but I spent the first... Uh, two and a half decades of my life in Minnesota. Okay. Well, you know, that's one of the things I'm wondering about is how you got from Minnesota to Oxford, uh, where you did, uh, the, I guess, the major part of your graduate study. And, uh, and one of the concepts you talk about in the book is the personal garden of forking paths. I want to make sure I say forking and not the other F word that comes to mind somehow. I have to believe it came to your mind at some point. Um, so tell us about your personal garden of forking paths, because I understand that a series of unlikely uh, uh, circumstances might have led up to this book. How did you come to write this book? Yeah, so you know, I it, one of the things that I, I write about with the Garden of Forking Paths idea. It's a it's a short story from uh, Borjas, this Argentinian writer in, in 1941 that I'm borrowing the title from. But it's this idea that you're sort of constantly reshaping the garden in front of you with with each step that you take through life. Now, 
we know about these things when we make big decisions. So when I decided to go over to the UK to study for grad school, I knew my life was going to change. You know what I mean? Like this was, this was obvious. It was going to be a different life than if I'd stayed in Minnesota. But the really bewildering thing about the Garden of Forking Paths is the idea that there's an infinite number of things you don't know about that are changing your future all the time. And so the one that really, I think, is part of the origin story of this book is that when I was 25, my dad sat me, sat me down sometime in my mid-20s and um, told me this horrible tragedy um, where a woman in a farmhouse in Wisconsin in 1905 uh, snapped and probably had postpartum depression, although we wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have called it that back in those days. And so she uh, she tragically murdered her her four children, young young kids. I think the oldest was five, and then uh, took her own life. And her husband came home and found the whole family just uh, dead in the, in the house. And the reason this is in the introduction is because uh, this is my great grandfather's first wife, and he remarried to my great grandmother uh, several years later. And that's the origin story of my existence. And so, you know, there's a few things philosophically that I think are impossible to ignore when when you realize that you're sort of this accident uh, byproduct of a, of a mass murder. One of them is how just sort of fragile the chain of existence for all of us is. I mean, yeah. you wouldn't be listening to my voice if, if this mass murder had not happened 119 years ago, which is quite a strange thought. But also, I mean, the thing that I think is really interesting about it is that it means that, you know, the best and worst moments in life are inextricably linked because all of the joys I've ever experienced are directly derived in a, in a sort of weird way from this horrific tragedy. Sure. And likewise, you know, some of the nicest moments of my life are probably going to produce in the future, some terrible moments for somebody else. And I, you know, even though I'm not trying to, it's just, it's the way the world is. And I think there's that interconnectivity, which is really magical about, about the world. And um, yeah, my own personal experience with it is sort of the origin story of the book. Okay, and uh, wow, uh, <laughs> it's, that's a story one can ponder, uh, you know, for quite a while. And uh, it, it really it speaks to the title of the book, Fluke. And, and Fluke is what I take is, is uh, something that shakes up the expected pattern or the, the expected chain of circumstances and and causes a radical change. This I have to say this challenges some of my own personal dogma belief that I really ha I have to rethink because I've been kind of a fan of the concept of of synchronicity, but mm. but your book, which really goes into as I say into the science of big numbers and probability and and uh, and c complexity theory and so on. Uh, really brings it alerts me to the fact that probably looking back, if if I feel my life has been governed by synchronicity because of the chain of what seemed like unbelievable coincidences, uh, it's because uh, it could also be looked at as a chain of flukes. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is something where we, I think no matter what happens to us, we're going to infer a pattern. Yeah. And I, I do talk in the book about how our brains have evolved to overdetect patterns in ways that always imbue causation and reasons to everything. So so we're, we're effectively allergic to randomness as explanations for things that happen in our lives. But I, at the same time, you know, one of the things I'm quite open about, and, and I hope this comes across in the book, is like we don't we don't know the answers to these questions, right? I think that there are... Um, my interpretation of the best available evidence is that a lot of these things just happened. And, 
you know, the, the ones that I that I sort of return to a few times that have shaped my worldview and have made me think that it's more accidental and arbitrary than some uh, grander plan is the, the two examples. One of them is the asteroid that knocked out the dinosaurs and made them extinct, you know, 66 million years ago. If it had been a delayed, you know, a second faster, a second later, uh, humans probably wouldn't exist because the the extinction of the dinosaurs is what allowed mammals to rise. And that is the origin story of of humanity. So, you know, uh, 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 there's this vibration in the Oort cloud in the distant reaches of space. And then this space rock hits the Earth and all of a sudden, you know, humans emerge 65 million years later or whatever. Um, and the other the other one that I point to is this. um evidence that's come out recently using uh, DNA testing and so on, where they think that the evolution of live births, in other words, the reason why mammals don't lay eggs, is because a single shrew-like creature got infected by a retrovirus 100 million years ago. Now, when I look at that, and this is where I think it's really interesting to talk to people with totally different worldviews from me, because when I look at that, I think, okay, so we're just accidents, right? Like there's just this arbitrary random thing, and it just leads to this chain of me talking to you. Um, other people say, you know, sort of there's a divine plan here. I mean, the reason I, you know, the, the reason I'm skeptical of that sometimes I think, you know, there's probably a, a more direct way to develop humans than to have, you know, a shrew-like creature get infected a hundred million <laughs> years ago. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I do think this is, if I was titling the book accurately, I think I would have called it why things happen. I think, I think that's basically the question the book is trying to answer is, is, mm. Why does stuff happen? You know, and and yeah. I, it's such an unbelievably large question, <laughs> um, yeah. but it is. I think it's the central question of human experience, and it's one that a lot of us just ignore. Well, you have such a great collection of anecdotes, stories like the shrew story. Have you been collecting these throughout your life? I mean, how is it? You know, because. Uh, there's so much stuff I've never heard before, but it, but it all makes sense. Where do you get this stuff from? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like that question. It's fun. I mean, I, being a being an author, I think, uh, requires you to be a bit of a sponge. So, because you never know, you know, it's one of these things where I read this uh, this little snippet, and it doesn't fit into anything I'm writing or working on now, but I just sort of tuck it in the back of my mind, and then you know maybe it will become useful at some other time. I mean, when I was actually researching the book, it was, you know, sort of nine months of intensive just waking up and reading. And, I you know, it was it. like just so much reading. But, it, you know, and, and some of the time and there's I, I sort of um, I wrote a piece at one point just like talking about my writing process. And uh, one of the things that I said was like there's there's a section in Fluke where I talk about the arbitrary nature of dog breeds. Right. I'm a big dog person. And there's like 231 words in the book that are about dog breeds. I read three academic books about this and like six journal articles <laughs> because the thing is the, the reality of it is like it wasn't worth more than 231 words in the end but like in order to get like the understanding of what was going on i had to read a ton of stuff and so you know you, you end up having these books you read and never use anything in them but that's just the nature of of nonfiction research and i i particularly like strange stories i mean i think that's something where people remember more when the story is unusual and when it's familiar, I think they sort of can skim through it and so on. And that's, you know, so my, my guiding principle was if I think that more than one out of a hundred people has heard of this before, I should not put it in the book. And I hope that I've uh, succeeded with that metric. I think you probably have. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if in the process, and again, I'm going to appeal to my, uh, my irrational hope and belief and synchronicity 
many people have had the experience when writing a book that it, as if there were some higher power guidance, brings things into their field of attention. So I wonder, did you have any what I would call synchronistic things pop up that, oh, this is perfect for my book? Yes, uh, I've got a great one for you. But I will say, before I answer that exact question, I will say that for me, one of the things that was really interesting was that this book did change my worldview. Like the stuff that I'm re I, I wrote about in Fluke, I did not think three years ago, uh, which was cool. I mean, all everything else I've written, I've sort of been broadcasting things that I think about the world to other people. And this one, like I changed my mind completely in writing this book, which is really uh, exciting for me. But yeah, I mean, so my favorite one, and this is the the, the origin story. I put this in my book proposal. Um, I, the opening story of the book is about the uh, the atomic bomb, and it's yes. about how um, a, a vacation was taken by this couple. And yeah, I, I just want to start, uh, interrupt there sure. because because of the the uh, movie about the the atomic bomb uh, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer and the great success of that movie, we all feel pretty well, you know, like we've got a lot of expertise now because of that story. Yeah. So go ahead with your story, which is a very different yeah, story. Yeah, so yeah, Oppenheimer, I mean, Oppenheimer actually gets it slightly wrong. They say it was a honeymoon, and this is all over the internet, and I did some serious research, and they did not go on a honeymoon, but they did go on a vacation. So these, this couple goes on a vacation in 1926 to Kyoto, and then 19 years later, he's the Secretary of War. The husband is the Secretary of War, and he stops the bomb being dropped because uh, he likes the city. But the synchronicity moment actually is not that. The synchronicity moment was that I was doing different reading uh, in evolutionary biology uh, around the same time. And I'm reading this biography of this guy who's like really central to the idea in evolutionary biology that a lot of mutations do not have a purpose. They're just random accidents, right? And so I'm sort of taking note of this and thinking, oh, this is an interesting person. I need to probably write about him at some point. And then I get to the biography bit and it says, uh, in 1944, he moved to the University of Kyoto to avoid getting conscripted into the Japanese military. And I realize all of a sudden these two things are completely connected because the bomb that would have been dropped had this person not gone on a vacation 19 years earlier would have incinerated the guy who's like the central person in evolutionary biology to come up with the idea of randomness, right, as an explanation for molecular mutations. And I don't think anyone's connected the dots of those two stories before. And it, that was a moment where I was like, oh, my, like, this is perfect because it's not it's not just the ideas intersect, but it's actually literally this guy would have died. Uh, so it's not just the city gets obliterated, but evolutionary biology would have changed, right? The field itself. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, the, that when I saw that, I, I was reading the Wikipedia page, and it was just like I just like put my mug of coffee down. And I was just like, I mean, that is the most perfect connection that I could have possibly imagined to start the book. And so it is the opening chapter of the book. And do you say that that writing the book has changed your your mind or orientation about some major? Uh, yes. attitude that you had before. What is I would that say changed? it's restructured. I think it's restructured my entire worldview. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't think about these things that in depth. Um, previously, a lot of the philosophy that flows out of this. But, you know, I mean, grappling with the idea that uh, I'm, I feel like a cosmic accident, that, that, you know, when you actually think about that and what that means, that makes you think differently about the world. Thinking about interconnectivity and how um, everything that we do has ripple effects that we can't foresee also has some interesting philosophy that you internalize from it. I mean, I, I think I just was forced to confront things that are 
a series of questions that people have in the back of their mind all the time, but in daily life, we don't ever talk about. And, you know, I think that was something where like, when I actually started thinking deeply about these questions, I was like, yeah, you know what? I mean, one of the biggest things for me actually was realizing like, I don't think my life has a cosmic purpose and I don't have a problem with that. And I, I don't mean that in some like flippant way. I just mean that like, I think I am an accident of, of a series of things that could have gone otherwise. And if that's the case, then like maybe what I'm supposed to do on the time that I have is like, you know, enjoy the experience of human consciousness, try to help other people make their lives better and spend time with people that I love. And like, you know, I think that's like a cool philosophy. I think there's like a lot of philosophies are always trying to come up with a grand reason for things. And for me, it's like, you know, maybe, maybe it's just that we're, we're here and we're supposed to enjoy our lives and, uh, you know, try to make other people's lives even more enjoyable if we can. And I think like, you know, that's the sort of stuff where it sounds very banal. I mean, I, I know it's a, a bit uh, banal, but it's, but it is the kind of thing where I, like, I didn't think about like what my philosophy of life was all that often before yeah. I wrote the book. So yeah. it, it, it did influence me a lot. In the face of all this information that, that you dig up and amazing connections does it at least give you a sense of awe about this that, universe that we're in? That is the number one word I would use. I think to, to me, I mean, that's the thing that like I, I thought about whenever you write a book, you think about like, what do you want people to say to you when they finish the book? Right. And there's a lot of things that I have thought about with, with fluke, but one of them is I, I just want people to think like, wow, like this is such a magical place we live in. Like there are just yeah. so many astonishing things that have happened that have created the existence that we have this, the sort of contingencies where like just trillions upon trillions of things that if they were slightly different, you don't exist. Right. And the world that we live in is different and so on. And, uh, and that just, I mean, I just find it so extraordinary. The idea that like all of human history could have been wiped out if a single shrew like creature did not get infected by a retrovirus. I mean, <laughs> it, it blows your mind. Right. And I think that's the stuff where, um, when you read nonfiction, yes, I mean, you're trying to get something out of it and there is actionable ideas with how you might think about your life differently and so on. But some of it's just like, this is just so interesting. And, and I found that when I was writing it, I just found that like this was a very, uh, you just the, the majestic nature, the complex nature of the universe is unbelievable. And yeah. uh, I, I have a fresh appreciation for it, I would say. Yeah. So one of the things you talk about is uh, chaos theory and uh... – and we've all sort of heard the the metaphor of uh, the bird flapping its wings in the southern hemisphere, and somehow that causes big changes with everything. Um, so the thing that was new for me was that as you discuss, I think it was chaos theory, that there are also, it got very complex. You know, I mm -hmm. thought, oh, okay. Uh, it turns out that there are subdivisions within chaos theory, and there are different theories about chaos theory. And one of the things that I wondered about, should we be calling it chaos theory, or should we be calling it chaos fact? Yeah, so so chaos theory is scientifically verified in a series of systems. The The technical definition is, is basically a system that has what's called sensitivity to initial conditions, but that's just a fancy way of saying that if you basically change anything small at the beginning of a system unfolding, it can become radically different. And we actually, we all know about chaos theory, even though we don't call it that, because this is why we can't predict the weather more than 10 days in advance. And the reason for that is because it's a chaotic system. So if the measurement of temperature in the model is off by like a millionth of a degree, 
then the forecast will be wrong 10 days later. So it's like you have to be completely perfect with your measurement. And because we can't, things are chaotic and we just can't predict beyond a certain period of time. Now, of course, that's true for human society, which is extremely complicated. I would say even more complicated than the weather because we're actually self-reflective creatures, right? We're not just, we're not just molecules. But I think the, the, the issue here is a lot of us don't like to imagine that the world is just chaotic. And of course, there is some order, right? There are things that are ordered about our lives. There's a lot of things that we experience that are regular. I mean, Starbucks is always the same. Uh, you know, this, so, so we have this sort of idea of regularity. And then, you know, we also have these things that are very, very chaotic. I think the point that I that I believe is is scientific fact that we just simply don't talk about very often is that everything that we do, I, I mean the third part of the subtitle, why everything we do matters, I mean it quite literally. And I've, I've tried to explain this to people. They're like, but not like everything, right? And I'm like, no, like everything. Like I think if you take a sip of coffee, you are slightly changing the way the future will unhold, unfold. Now, maybe it'll be a big change. Maybe it'll be a small change, right? But like if a mass murder 119 years ago causes this podcast, that's chaos theory, right? Because it's like, it's not intentional. There's just these ripple effects that play out. And had they been slightly different, this would not have happened. So I think the question is about time scales and it's also about visibility. So we often won't know what's changed. So I have this idea in the book called the snooze button effect where it's like, okay, it's a Tuesday morning. You wake up, you feel tired, you hit the snooze button. Your life rewinds five minutes. You don't hit the snooze button. The question is, how does your life unfold differently? I mean, it's obvious that it will unfold slightly differently. Sometimes it'll be big. You'll you know, get in a car accident or not. Sometimes it'll be small. You'll talk to a slightly different person or you'll have a different conversation than you would have if you'd gotten there five minutes earlier. And the question is, like, how does that aggregate over time? I mean, if you have a different conversation one day, but then that leads to an introduction to a different person and then that becomes a friend. I mean, these things have ripple effects. And so I just think it's so bewildering to think about the world this way that we just stop. We just literally don't imagine it because it is overwhelming to imagine that a snooze button can change your life. But I think it's quite literally true that it does. I think it, I think it constantly is changing. It's just not, it's, it's something you can't control and you have no way of forecasting. Yeah, it's, you know, in a way, it's kind of like <laughs> in a strange way, it's kind of like God, the concept of God. We can't imagine it. And in the same way, it's really hard to imagine that probably that uh, chance can play such a big role in everything, and that it, and I know you say there's no free will, and and that makes you a determinist, and mm. uh, you know that's a major religious uh, category right there. Um, One of the places, that, so I found that some of the places I could, I could follow the science, and there were other places where, boy, this is really getting very technical, and I don't have enough scientific training to, to be sure, or mathematical training to be sure that I'm following this. But it's interesting nonetheless. One of the things that caught my eye was the idea of complex basins of probability. Mm. And was was that the place where time or probability flows backwards? Well, this so this is I think you're referring to the the basins of attraction, which is an idea in complex systems theory. And this is something where I think you know basically our world exists somewhere between order and disorder, right? So like if if everything was complete disorder, like our molecules would fly apart and we wouldn't exist, and there would be no regularity and no structure to the world, and so on. 
if there was complete order, then there would be no uncertainty whatsoever. Everything would just be a clockwork machine, right? And there would be, um, you know, complete predictability. And we live somewhere between those two. And so the basins of attraction idea is one where some systems will return to the same basin over and over and over, right? So an example of this would be traffic patterns. When you get onto a highway, uh, you know, it is very frequent that people will all gravitate towards a similar speed, the speed limit, which is a basin of attraction for the highway. And they'll be roughly the same distance apart, right? Somebody might tailgate you, somebody might be way further behind, but like overall the system has a sort of average distance between cars and speeds and so on. And that creates regularity over and over and over, even though there is a lot of different people who are driving, right? However, one of the things that can happen too is a basin of attraction can be towards what's called a tipping point. And this is where you are constantly getting a system to its absolute limit. So one of the examples I, I like to, to explain this with, which I didn't put in the book, but I think it's a useful one, is trying to explain how the Suez Canal boat, I don't know if you remember this like two years ago, there's a boat that got stuck in the Suez Canal and it like messed up all global economy, you know, like trade for like a week and a half. And it caused like all this, all these problems and delays and everything. That's because the basin of attraction in the global economy is to optimize to the absolute limit. You want to have no delays. You want to have absolute efficiency. So the product arrives, you know, right on time and so on. But that means that if anything goes wrong, the entire system can break apart. So the basin of attraction is not stable. It's towards what's called the tipping point where basically one little tiny change can cause the entire thing to fall apart. And so, you know, I think it's a, it's a useful way of thinking about how you design systems in your own life, right? I mean, I, one of the points that I make, and this is something my, my grandfather said to me as his life advice, and he's the, he's the son of um, the, the great grandfather who came home and found his family murdered. My grandfather's advice to me for life was avoid catastrophe, right? That was the two word, <laughs> two word advice. And, and the, point, the point about that is like, look, you know, design your life in a way where you are able to be resilient. You know, don't, don't make it so if one tiny thing goes wrong, it will just wipe you out. And I think that's a good way of thinking about social systems. It's also a good way of thinking about life. And it's it's one where I think we've lost some of that. I think there's a lot of people who are given the impression that you should squeeze every last drop of efficiency out of your life, even at the cost of resilience. And uh, and to me, I think that's something where the basins of attraction idea can be useful to sort of think slightly differently about this. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, don't play it too safe because that'll lead your life to be uh, so constricted as to uh, not be at all enjoyable or useful. I like the uh, the example that you gave about the the grain of sand, the big mm. pile of sand, and somebody actually did this as an experiment, speaking of a tipping point, that yes. a, a pile of sand empirically was created and reached a point where one grain caused the whole thing to collapse. Yeah, so this this one is it's still called the sand pile model. I will say I looked into the physics of this and uh actually it doesn't work exactly right with sand, so they use rice now. So it oh. should be the rice model, but it's the sand pile model makes a lot more sense to people, so we do sand. So the way it works is you say, you know, you imagine you're putting one grain of sand at a time over and over and over into the same place and it builds up into this pile. Now, at some point, the pile will get to a tipping point where a single extra grain of sand will cause an avalanche and the entire thing will collapse, right? Now, the, the way I incorporate this idea into thinking about systems and risk and so on is that if you build a sand pile that is absolutely at the limit, then any extra sand out of place can cause a collapse. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas if the sand pile is, is smaller, if it's not brought up to the full height, the possible height it can be, then additional grains of sand can fall on it and it's fine. It's not going to fall. So it's a question about like how uh, you can create these cascades from very small changes when systems become brittle. And this is something where I think, you know, it's, it's also, again, a lesson for our lives. Like I think that uh, a lot of stuff in human society, think about the pandemic, for example. You know, a single person got infected with a virus in China in 2020, and then 8 billion people's lives changed. That's that's a sand pile model because it's something where the system is so interconnected and so, uh, so you know, sort of um, uh, at its limit that a single infection can affect everybody in the world. That idea, right? So the sand pile model is just a, it's, a, it's an interesting way of thinking about how small changes can have catastrophic effects um, because the system is at that point where it might end up in an avalanche. It's a way of thinking about change in that way. Yeah. So this leads to my wondering about your uh, one of the things that you do is you're a political consultant to uh, governments around the world. And so given that flukes happen and there's so and very large unpredictable or small unpredictable things can cause huge problems from what base do you consult? Yeah, so I think the advice, I mean, I, I don't do this as often anymore. I've been focusing on the books and so on. But the advice that I'm giving in Fluke, which I hope politicians do take, is to plan for a lot more slack in systems because mm -hmm. things will happen that are unexpected. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the history of the 21st century is basically a series of calamities that were unforeseen. I mean, you had 9-11, the war in Iraq, the financial collapse, the Arab Spring, which is one of my favorite examples, because a guy in central Tunisia literally lit himself on fire. And then, you know, there was multiple civil wars and regimes collapsed shortly thereafter. Um, then you also have the, you know, the rise of Trump, you have the uh, Brexit campaign, you have the pandemic, and then you have wars that are happening around the world now, all these things unforecasted. And so, you know, the, the advice that I would give is that if you think about these things as serious risks, you would design systems slightly differently. So uh, an example that comes to mind is, I think it was in Chile, in the, in the country in, in South America, where they set up an electrical grid. And they could have made it more efficient by having all of it interconnected. But instead, they made it into regional hubs. And the idea was that if any part of it broke, it would only break in that one local area. It wouldn't break the entire system, right? And it was more efficient, or sorry, it was more inefficient, and it was also more expensive. But when a blackout did happen, it only affected a small group of people. And so I think that's the sort of principle that I'm talking about, where it's like, look, we can't predict what's going to happen. Like, I'm a political scientist. I cannot tell you what's going to happen in 2024. We don't have any better idea than the rest of you. I mean, it's like, you know, this is just, even though it's our job to think about these things, we just simply don't have the ability to forecast extremely unusual events, which often change the world. And so if that's the case, then resilience has to be something we focus on a lot more. And that's the sort of lesson I would say for politicians. Yeah, it's interesting. Resilience has become a huge topic in the world of clinical psychology, which is where my training is. Mm. And, and uh, so it holds at the personality level, you know. I think, I mean, to me, I think it's one of the most important traits a human can have. Uh, yeah. You know, I think I think it's one of those things where, like, the world is going to throw stuff at you. I think that the, the fluky nature of, of reality is one where you just, you can't plan your life. I think, by the way, 
it would be super boring if we could plan our lives. I think it would be terrible if we could all script our lives in exactly the way we wanted to. It's right. it's often the unexpected stuff that is most you know rich in, in our lives. But I do think that like you know uh, the resilience on the on the mental health side of things is so important because your trajectory will get diverted in a weird way at some point, and you have to deal with it. Um, yeah. And I think it's the same lesson for for society as it is for individuals. Now, you mentioned Trump, and uh, I noticed in your bio that, that you have written a book about Trump. So what do you say in that book? What's What are your takeaways about uh, Trump? Yeah, I mean, so in my previous work, I was writing about Trump from the perspective of, um, you know, worries I have about American democracy and so on. I, in, in Fluke, one of the things that I think is really interesting to think about with him, and I didn't write about this in the previous book, is that um, I, I ended up not including this in the text because I wasn't able to verify that this is actually what happened. But there's a lot of people around Trump who have said that the moment he decided to run for president in 2016 was actually five years earlier in 2011. And you can look this up on YouTube. There's a White House correspondence dinner uh, where Barack Obama is giving his speech and he absolutely humiliates Donald Trump. He makes all these jokes about him and makes fun of him. He says something to the effect of, you know, um, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to you, be, what it would be like to be you, Donald, because, you know, I'm sitting in the situation room and imagining how hard it would be to figure out who to fire on Celebrity Apprentice. And I'm just so thankful that I don't have to make the hard decisions. You know, he makes this joke about him or whatever. And because people were laughing at Trump, uh, some of the confidants around him said that that was the moment that he's like, I'm going to run for president and, and I'm going to destroy Obama's legacy and undo a lot of the things that Obama wanted to have happen. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's the kind of uh, mentality where I think, you know, imagine if that joke hadn't been said and Trump had not decided to run for president. You can imagine how different the world would be, right, from one joke, possibly. Right. And so one right. of the lessons that's that's interesting about the nature of these flukes is that for people in positions of authority – any tiny change can have much more profound ripple effects, right? So like the time scale on which you can change the world is much shorter if you're the president of the United States than if you're just some random person like me. And so I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, thinking about that in that way and also the, the fluky nature of the 2016 election is a series of things that if they, you know, panned out slightly differently, maybe Hillary Clinton would have won. And, you know, the world would be profoundly different. So it's it's very difficult to forecast any of this stuff before the time. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in 2024. But I, I do think that this idea that we always look back on political events and say, oh, of course, this was always going to happen. It was part of a trend. I think it's just writing history backwards, right? Nobody knew at the time. And then we just come up with a neat and tidy story to explain how we got here. And very often, there's a lot of randomness that we just write out of those stories. Yeah, you give wonderful examples of that in the book of uh, things that we think we think we know because history has told us this story. We think we know how the why the first world war got started. I think that was one example. Maybe you can yep. run us through the short version of that. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, there's there's people who have written about this previously, and they they they've told part of the story. The part of the story that often is told is that uh, Gavrilo Princip, who's the person who assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand, uh, which started World War One, a chain of a chain of events that started World War One. Um, it was a total fluke in the sense that the Archduke's uh, car broke down 
literally right in front of him. Right. So like the car broke right where the assassin was standing. And so it was sort of this opportunistic killing that leads to World War One. The thing that I discovered in researching this that I I haven't seen written about as much is that the Archduke went on a hunting expedition in England uh, several months before this. And when they were loading the shotgun for the hunting expedition, the gun went off and the bullet sailed over his shoulder by like three inches. So he might have died in England months before he was assassinated. And if that had happened, maybe World War One would not have occurred. So, you know, I mean, this and then, you know, there's a lot of historians will say, OK, the humiliation of Germany in World War One leads to the rise of Hitler in World War Two. I mean, you know, you can very quickly see how a bullet moving three inches down or up could have some really profound effects for the way the 20th century unfolds. And I think that's the nature of history. It's just that it's easier for us to infer, you know, very straight lines between what happened first and what happened later and, and to write out these sort of accidents. Yeah, yeah. There's one that you tell about Abraham Lincoln as well. Maybe you could share that one with us. I like that one. Yeah, so so Abraham Lincoln was actually warned of an assassination plot against him by a person who was working in the White House as a clairvoyant. Uh, and he was basically hired by Lincoln's wife because he claimed to be able to speak to the dead. And um, their young son had previously died. So she brought him in and she found comfort in him. Abraham Lincoln thought this guy was a quack, and he definitely was, probably. Um, but it was one of these things where what ended up happening was he actually had real knowledge of the assassination plot because he was friends with John Wilkes Booth. So it's an interesting example of how the messenger matters as much as the information very often in how history unfolds. Because if one of his you know, confidants had said, look, we've discovered intelligence that they're plotting to kill you, Lincoln might not have gone to Ford's theater. But Instead, because this clairvoyant told him, he was like, okay, well, this guy doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. And then he gets assassinated as a result. So uh, it's it's one of those things where we like to think that information is just objective, but it's not. And the way that it's pre presented and framed and who the messenger is does affect uh, the course of history as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, as we kind of begin to wrap things up here, um, who do you see as the your target reader, and uh, what do you hope people will take away from this book? What's the message you really want them to get? That's that's a very nice question to ask. So, um, my target reader is someone who's intellectually curious about the world and their own life. I mean, I think it's uh, you know it's it's something where I hope people think about their own lives slightly differently after reading the book. I hope they think slightly differently about the world. I hope they get a sense of awe about the way the world works. Uh, and I also think that there's ways to philosophically interpret some of the science that I present in ways that make their life feel more meaningful and uplifting. Um, because, you know, the, the part of the modern malaise that I find in a lot of people I talk to who are upset or sad about their, their own lives is like a feeling of powerlessness and a feeling of interchangeability, right? Like we, I'm going to be replaced by a robot or by artificial intelligence, or I don't matter or whatever. And I think the the scientific truth is that you do matter. I think that we're all reshaping the future constantly. And to me, that makes me feel comforted. Even though I don't feel like there's a cosmic purpose, I do feel like there's something about my life that's going to reshape the future. So, you know, I think there's a lot of different angles. The, the, the book is part history, part philosophy, part science, part social science. And that is where I hope that regardless of someone's interest, they can dip into it and find something uh, that's helpful for them. 
one of the greatest things about the world is that we've got 8 billion different brains trying to make sense of the mysteries of life. And everybody will come to fluke with a different takeaway, I think. And and that's what I like. I like when people write to me and say, here's what I thought, you know, and it's it's not going to be the same way I think about the world. And that's fine. That's one of the beauties of, of existence. Uh, where should people go to f- to find you to find information about you? Do do you have a master website that uh, will clue us all in? I do indeed. So uh, my my main website is just my name brianpcloss.com. But the the best place probably to to find my writing is um, that sh- that title that I told you before, the Garden of Fourteen Paths. I actually write a newsletter with that title. So if you Google. My name, Brian Kloss, and the Garden of Forking Paths. You can subscribe for free to that newsletter. And I write articles one to two times a week about some of these subjects and and my thoughts on uh, various topics that that fascinate me and hopefully will fascinate some other people too. Well, thank you for uh, for your gifts <laughs> that, that you share with the world. And uh, personally, I'm a big fan. And I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio. It, it was such a great conversation. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to bring you today's guest, Dr. Brian Kloss, who is a noted author and international political consultant. We discuss his 2024 book, Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. So wowed by the book that I've been recommending it to my family and friends as a quotes must read. It's chock full of science stories I haven't encountered before. Brian remarked an alternate title he considered was Why Stuff Happens. Brian says writing this book changed his attitude toward life. That sort of flexibility is a point in his favor, as far as I'm concerned. He also says he learned awe and resilience in the writing. However, be forewarned that he is a determinist and does not believe in free will. According to him, We live in a probabilistic universe in which everything has causes, but the complexity is often so great that we tend to settle for stories that are easy to comprehend. Rather than feeling despair by forsaking the notion of free will, he feels enlivened by its absence. Personally, I find the intelligent design theory of the universe as mind-boggling as its opposite, that it's all just cause and effect. Both notions are beyond comprehension for our limited brains. I'm impressed by Brian's curiosity and industriousness. This book represents his own research. He didn't have a team working under him. He told me he deliberately searched for historical connections that others had missed. If you can tolerate ambiguity and are interested in the further reaches of science, I can enthusiastically recommend Brian's remarkable book to you. Thomas here from upstate New York. I just want to say that I listened to my first podcast, number 354, What Aging Men Want, and I was prompted immediately to make a modest donation of $20. First, because I received the most prompt and personal customer service I have ever gotten when I called in a question to Dr. Dave about shrink wrap radio. 
But much more significantly, after listening to just one program, I was inspired to get off the dime I had been sitting on procrastinating for weeks about contacting a shrink. And to boot, as a result of Dr. Robinson's interview, I had picked up a copy of The Odyssey to reread after 50 years since reading it the first time in high school. If you are into value, think about what you get. In today's economy where a $20 bill doesn't buy you what a $10 bill bought in a grocery store just a year ago, you get with Shrink Wrap Radio hundreds of entertaining, insightful, and helpful discussions. They are free. Yes, indeed, and that is real value. But still, to help out with a few bucks, it is still real value when you think of this vast resource just waiting for you to discover new areas of enlightenment. Myself, I hate exercising, but I love listening. And now I'm walking more and longer because I am now listening to Shrink Wrap Radio on my MP3 player. Chip in and you will get a lot of value for your contribution. And you will feel good about doing so, just as I did. Thanks. Thanks to new listener Thomas in upstate New York. I know there are people out there listening and putting off becoming donors. Thomas, thank you for encouraging others to follow your fine example. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Big thanks to today's guest, Dr. Brian Kloss, for sharing his deep thinking in his 2024 book, Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. I've put out an invitation for next week's guest, and I'm waiting for confirmation. So tune in next time and be surprised. And until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.